You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Free Libraries Writers Live Author Series. I'm Vivian Fisher, and it is my pleasure and honor to introduce our special guest speaker, Rachel Devlin, who is an award-winning historian and associate professor at Rutgers University since 2011, whose scholarly interests are in the cultural politics of girlhood, sexuality, and race in the post-war United States. She is the author of Relative Intimacy, Fathers, Adolescent, Daughters, and Post-War American Culture, and she received her PhD from Yale University, and she currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. She has published several articles in the Journal of Social History, the Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities, and Reviews in American History. She has also received awards from the American Council of Learned Societies, the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University, and the Social Sciences Research Council. This evening, Rachel Devlin will discuss her latest work, A Girl Stands at the Door, the generation of young women who desegregated America's school. This work illustrates the extraordinary bravery of young African-American women who made racial integration in schools a political priority and an imaginable reality. Please join me in welcoming Rachel Devlin to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've been looking through all the volumes in the back, and all of my favorite books are here, and books that I used for this research. Uh, and it's very exciting to be speaking among them. So, A Girl Stands at the Door is a retelling of Brown v. Board of Education. And it's a retelling uh, that uh, situates the story uh, with the young girls and women who were plaintiffs in desegregation lawsuits in the late 1940s and leading up through Brown v. Board, and then by telling the stories of the young women who volunteered to desegregate the schools, especially in the Deep South. Uh, these young women uh, took great risks in filing desegregation lawsuits, especially in the late 1940s. They suffered backlash from, often from the white community, but also from within their own communities when they filed these desegregation lawsuits early on in the late 1940s. And historians have looked at Brown v. Board and assumed that it was an idea hatched by NAACP lawyers and brought to the Supreme Court by Thurgood Marshall, who most people know, uh, and the NAACP. What this book does is says that Brown v. Board would never have happened without the labor and contributions and leadership of girls and young women. Girls who approached white schools, uh, talked to angry and hostile principals, who turned around and went and spoke to the press, who testified in court, who met with lawyers, uh, and who stuck with their cases and became the face of desegregation um, for the larger community. Um, uh, approaching a white school in 1947 or 1948 was a radical act of social optimism. No one had ever seen black and white students go to school together. No one could really imagine what that would be like. So it was very, uh, it was, it was very dramatic when a, when a young girl attempted uh, to walk into a, a white school. She very often didn't get very far, usually just the front door. And so I'm just going to read to you quickly one case uh, in 1947 in Washington, D.C. On the morning of April 13, 1947, 14-year-old Marguerite Daisy Carr went, to, went with her father to the Elliott Junior High School, the white school closest to her home in Washington, D.C., and attempted to enroll. The principal, tipped off that she was on her way, met her on the steps. As she stood facing him, the white students pressed up against the windows to see what would happen. 
across the street, teachers, students, janitors, the PTA, and the principal of her junior high, Brown Junior High School, stood on the sidewalk. To their minds, it was something made up, something fantastic. But here this child is just coming on, Carr remembers. Engaging this situation, she recalled what her parents had taught her about how to act in polite company. And so, she says, I smiled nicely. And when the principal told her, you don't want to come here, she responded respectfully but firmly, I do want to come to this school. Carr's response carried within it the, uh, the contradictory attributes um, that were required in these kinds of confrontations. She smiled, a sign of social reciprocity, trust, a willingness to engage. But she also combatively and courageously talked back to the white school official who was barring her way from the newly built Citadel of Learning two blocks from her home in Washington, D.C., Carr sued Elliott Junior High School. In her case, Carvey Corning was one of the earliest school desegregation lawsuits of the post-war era. Uh, men, uh, it was one of about a dozen lawsuits that were filed everywhere from rural Texas to Kansas to Washington, D.C. and Virginia in the late 1940s. Most of these cases never met, went to the Supreme Court, and they have been forgotten. But these were the cases that first got the attention of Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP and laid the groundwork for Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, girls in these cases approached white schools, talked to hostile white principals, turned around and did a great job with the press, had endless meeting with, meetings with lawyers. And if you've ever had a meeting with a lawyer, you know how long and boring they could be. These were young women. <laughs> My apologies to any lawyers in the room. Um, and, and they talked about their cases with conviction and in concise, self-possessed ways to both the black and the white press. The first thing that the white press wanted to know from all these school desegregation plaintiffs was one thing. Do you want to go to school with white students? Do you think you'll become friends with white students? These were difficult, even explosive questions to ask a young person, and girls did well with these questions uh, in general. Um, so the central question at the heart of this book is why did girls act as school desegregation plaintiffs and later as desegregation firsts? There are two primary reasons for this. The first is that girls disproportionately believed in the idea or the ideal of school desegregation. They believed that, this, that segregated schools were a moral crisis and they believed that they should change that. But what allowed a girl to look at the edifice of a white school building and say to herself, her lawyer, her parents, I can go there. I can talk to that hostile white principal. I can hold my own with those white students. Again, they felt a sense of responsibility that was unique to girls. When women recall their desegregating years, they say things like, I just felt in my heart, in my soul, that I had to do it. Or they would say, Somebody had to do it, and it might as well be me. Or if I didn't do it, who was going to do it? So there was an incredible sense of responsibility there. Girls as young as six exhibited the ability to lead. Jean Fairfax, who was an NAACP coordinator, went to Leake County, Mississippi in 1964 to help with the school desegregation process. The schools were to be segregated, desegregated the next day. The night before, the KKK went around and harassed all of the families. All of the families backed out except for one. She went to their house late at night, the night before the schools were to be opened, and was speaking with the family. And she remembers sitting down at the kitchen table, and there was this silence. And all of a sudden, Deborah, the daughter who was six, said, Well, what is everyone waiting for? I'm ready to go. So six-year-olds can have an opinion, and they can, in fact, inject some agency into political goals. Um, the other reason that girls tended to 
desegregate schools is because they were good at it. In order to desegregate a school, you have to have two qualities. The first is physical courage, which for any uh, civil rights uh, venture you need. But the other thing you need is social dexterity. These girls were self-possessed. They were polite. They were personable. They were composed. They were diplomatic. And they were patient. All of these qualities were needed if you were going to spend large amounts of time with white adults and white students in hostile, difficult situations. Black girls from a young age learned these skills as an as a, uh, as a everyday uh, part of their lives. Uh, diplomacy, self-possession, and poise especially. They learned these skills as a way to protect themselves when they were out on the streets, when white men would harass them, when they would be sexually harassed, when they would be insulted on the streets. The only way that girls had to defend themselves was to be self-possessed, to be calm, and to, and to calmly uh, uh, give a, a good retort to somebody who is insulting them. Uh, girls learn these uh, skills uh, uh, on the streets, as I say, as a matter of course, but self-possession, poise, and grace was also drilled into them by their teachers, their ministers, their older sisters, their aunts. Everybody t told girls that they needed to be extremely poised as a way to move through the world as black young women. Girls were also used to surveillance when they worked in white homes by the white men of the house, by the sons in the house. So, so being uh, in a situation, an intimate situation, where you're, being, where you're on display, where you're being looked at, where you're being tested, this was something that black girls already had in place. They had these skills in place before they ever reached the schoolhouse door. So that's the larger picture of... Of, of, of girls and what they did, just to put the movement in some kind of uh, uh, chronological perspective. And I do call it the school desegregation movement. It was a movement. It was a grassroots movement. It wasn't something that was achieved by the NAACP lawyers and that filtered down. Lucille Bluford was 26 when she tried to enroll at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. She applied 11 times between 1939 and 1942. She just simply kept going back to the campus and attempting to enroll. The, the school eventually branded her a nuisance and barred her from the school. And in 1942, they actually shut down their school of journalism, which was an internationally known acclaimed school of journalism, rather than admit her. So she really got the ball rolling. After Lucille Bluford, Ada Sipuel sued the University of Oklahoma to, to become a student at their law school. She was the first person to sue a graduate school after World War II, and she was the only graduate student plaintiff to say no unequivocally when the state offered to set up a separate school for African Americans, a separate black law school. She said, no, out of hand, I will not do this. Um, Ada Sipuel became famous. She was constantly in the black press, but increasingly in the white press, too. Every time she went to the University of Oklahoma, the school warmed to her. And they warmed to her because she had an uncanny ability to speak to the press. When she won a Supreme Court victory that helped her to eventually enroll at the University of Oklahoma, and she came back to Oklahoma, when she got off the, uh, the plane uh, in Oklahoma City, the black press and the white press rushed up to her to ask her what she thought of the decision, was she actually going to go to the University of Oklahoma. And she didn't say, I've triumphed. She didn't say the NAACP has won. She said, justice is for everyone in the United States. It's a beautiful constitution. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to learn. So this kind of embrace of, of American ideals made her very popular with the white press. Her upbeat and confident and gracious manner won people over. And the Daily Oklahoma and the white paper that was steadfastly against Ada Sipuel for years turned around and embraced her uh, as a local hero. And in and, and big headlines, when she got back from Washington, D.C., it says, it's a beautiful constitution, Ada says, on return to the state. So she really in, 
talked her way uh, into the university as much as she sued her way into the university. She was so calm, she was so charismatic too with the press that in her presence on the OU campus, and, and by the way, Norman, Oklahoma, where OU is, black people were not even allowed in Norman after sundown. So it was a particularly difficult place to try to desegregate. But Ada Sipuel was so good on her feet with the press that her presence there began to seem normal, if not inevitable. When she got there and she finally enrolled in 1949, she said, I hope to make friends. She also said, I'm not here really to socialize. I'm here to study. And then for good measure, she also added, but those who call me names, I won't even hear them. So she managed to convey a complicated set of messages. I'm socially open, but I'm also impenetrable. I'm stubborn. I'm going to stay here. If you want to make friends, I will. But if not, it's not going to bother me. This made her an airtight school desegregation pioneer. Um, after Ada Sipuel became very popular in the press, daughters and parents, girls anywhere from 14 to 17 or 18 years old, began to approach schools all over the South and simply attempt to enroll. In uh, Arlington, Virginia, a 17-year-old young woman simply tried to walk into a high school and enroll when they rejected her. She filed her own lawsuit with her mother, which is Carter versus School Board. Uh, in rural Texas, two twins, 14 years old, Doris Ray and Doris Faye Jennings, went with their father uh, to the Hearn High School to attempt to enroll. Again, the principal came out. He, In these small towns, they know what's happening. But, but just like with Marguerite Carr, he would not even let them in the front door. So he met them on the steps, said, they're not coming in here. They and their father turned around, went to Waco, and filed a lawsuit. This was the first lawsuit that Thurgood Marshall actually argued. Uh, the NAACP in Texas said, you've got to come down here and argue this case. We're getting too many school desegregation cases. We don't know what to do with all of them. So Marshall, who was not even interested in filing grade school desegregation cases at that point, had to come down and argue the case. Um, Eventually, these parents and young women were so determined and so patient and also so increasingly popular with the black press that Thurgood Marshall was forced to take desegregation to the Supreme Court many years before he anticipated doing so. And I just want to read to you what Thurgood Marshall told an interviewer in 1968 when he asked him about the cases. This is Marshall. People are not yet convinced that we never had a program. From the beginning to the end, there was no plan on any of these cases. None. The best proof of it is that once we won the law school and the graduate school, the next case should have been college, and then it should have been junior college, and then high school, and then all the way down. Well, obviously, next, there was no plan. Um, and the next case was elementary school. Obviously, there was no plan. And we were kind of peeved. We didn't really want it. We didn't want it, but we had it. We've been going at it for this long. Let's take a couple more years. Then all of a sudden, here we go. So this is Thurgood Marshall trying to, and people generally wouldn't listen, historians after this continue to write the history of Brown as something that was planned by Thurgood Marshall. But in fact, all these cases kept coming uh, to the office in New York, uh, and eventually uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, had to take it on. After Brown, girls would continue to lead the way. Girls vastly uh, outnumbered boys in agreeing to and volunteering uh, to desegregate schools. In 1957, as was well known, nine students desegregated Central High, six were girls, three were boys. In 1960, four girls desegregated the first grade at, uh, in New Orleans. Ruby Bridges is very well known, uh, but also Gail Chan, uh, Tessie Prevost Williams, and Leona Tate desegregated McDonough 19 School as a, uh, as a group of three. Uh, by the end of their first day, all the white children were gone. Um, how did they get into these schools? Academic testing, 
psychological testing? Uh, did you have two parents in the home? But the final thing you had to do before you could enter one of these white schools was to have an interview with the superintendent of schools who tended to be extremely pissed off that you were there. Girls proved, again, to be very good at this kind of thing. A great example is Millicent Brown, who desegregated the Charleston High Schools in 1963. In the summer of 63, her father came to her and said, he just said, put on your Sunday best, we're going to the school board. They arrive at the school board. He says, they're waiting for you, go in. She goes into the room, and the entire white, all-male school board is sitting around a table. They wanted to ask her a few questions. Do you like your black school? Do you like your classes? Do you have friends? Are you doing extracurricular work in your black high school? She answered yes to all of these questions. And they got to the end and said, so why would you want to leave all that and go someplace where you don't know anybody? And Millicent Brown, as unprepared as she was, shot back, well, I make friends wherever I go. And she had, in that moment, really checkmated the whole room, right? She sort of thrown the question back at them as if to say, I don't know what you do when you go to a new place, but I make friends. So the simplicity, the humanity of what she had to say uh, pushed, them, uh, pushed them off the track. And uh, true to her word, she was on the front page of the New York Times in the fall of 1963, desegregating Rivers High School. She was outside of the school talking to a white girl, looking for all the world as if she was making friends. In fact, they were out uh, on the sidewalk because of a bomb scare. Um, but she uh, ultimately succeeded and went. It was very violent in these spaces. I just want to read to you quickly what happened in Sims Middle School when Tessie Prevost, Leona Tate, um, and Gayla Chien went to, um, went to Sims Middle School. By the time they were in middle school, the marshals were gone, the press was gone, the police on the mountain on the horses were gone, and they had to face... Uh, they, every grade they desegregated, that grade then became desegregated citywide. So there was a target on their backs. And this is what one of, this is what Tessie Prevost had to say. The teachers were no better than the kids. They encouraged them to fight us, to do whatever it took, spit on us. We couldn't even eat in the cafeteria. They'd spit in our food. We could hardly use the restrooms. We couldn't drink out of the water faucets. They'd punch you, trip you, kick you. They'd punch you down, they'd push you down the steps. Gail got hit with the bat. I got hit with the bat in the face. They would put, they would put, uh, they would do spitballs. They would put them on in a slingshot, just a little ball, and they'd wet it. If so, it was somebody constantly doing this to you. It was just terrible. Every day, every day, and the teachers encouraged it. So this is what they went through uh, in New Orleans, uh, in Baton Rouge, where 18 girls and five boys desegregated the high schools. The violence was even worse. It was life-threatening. Uh, the difference in the high school was that the girls eventually started fighting back, and that helped actually to make the violence a, a little bit more manageable. Um, in general, people want to know when I write about these young women, they really want to know what happened afterwards. Were they traumatized? How did they survive this? Um, they did survive it. Most of them were exhausted and emotionally um, distraught uh, once they graduated. Many of them spent a few years just trying to figure out what they wanted to do. A few of them went on to desegregate LSU or other colleges because local people knew who had desegregated the high schools. Many of them failed out, or they transferred to historically black universities, and they had a hard time for a few years. But by the time I interviewed them, 40, 50 years after the fact, all of them had achieved incredible feats as firsts. They desegregated school faculties, they desegregated business offices, government offices, one desegregated the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So they had taken these experiences and used them later in life. And if you think about the 30 or so women I interviewed and what they went on to do and multiply that out throughout the United States, uh, they did a lot. And I think what I would call 
what I heard most in these interviews uh, was a kind of wisdom that they had accrued from desegregating these spaces. A wisdom about human behavior, about hatred, about the necessity to not hate back, and about how to survive. And then uh, I just would like to end and take some questions uh, by just mentioning that Ada Sipuel graduated from the uh, University of Oklahoma. She became the first African-American in the state of Oklahoma to pass the bar who had actually been educated in Oklahoma. She went on to teach, become the first faculty member of color at the University of Oklahoma. And she stayed there uh, and eventually became a member of the very board of regents that tried so hard to make sure that she never entered the school. Her last act upon retiring was to create an endowed chair for Anita Hill. And she hired Anita Hill. Initially, they became close friends. And then when Anita Hill was testifying, um, uh, uh, when, Anita, when Anita Hill testified uh, at the Clarence Thomas hearings, she came to rely on Ada Sipuel. And I just want to read uh, quickly what it is that she had to say about Ada Sipuel. This is Anita Hill talking about Ada Sipuel. As I settled into my, as I settled into my role there, I drew on her enthusiasm. At every step, she supported me from the day I got there, through the, through tenure, and finally when I needed it most, when my job was threatened after I testified in 1991 at the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Clarence Thomas. Her support was vocal in both pr private and in public settings. At, the at a university function in Norman, days after my testimony, she greeted me in her familiar, enthusiastic manner, and she said, Anita, you're my kind of woman. I knew then that I could weather the trials that lay ahead because Ada Lois Sipuel told me I could. Ada Lois Sipuel, Fisher what? Fisher was her last name, was my role model for strength and committed leadership and my inspiration to remain hopeful. And she still is. So, <laughs> any questions? So, uh, well, let me answer the first half of your question. So, I was doing research on girls in the 1950s, and I wanted to find out about black girlhood uh, during those years. So I just went to the library and pulled down um, bound copies of Ebony, and I just paged through them page by page from 45 to 65. And I found that whenever there was an article about school desegregation, it was about a girl. And I thought, why is this? And I thought, well, maybe it's editorial bias, and they just like to do stories on girls. But another part of me also thought, well, oh, well, Brown v. Board was filed on behalf of Linda Brown. And in New Orleans, Ruby Bridges desegregated the schools. And just, on, just those little facts and Ebony, I thought, I just need to go, I just need to find out. Um, and so what I did is I went to the Library of Congress and looked at the records of the NAACP. And... I went through all the education records, and as it turns out, there were a multitude of lawsuits being filed in the late 1940s, equalization suits and desegregation suits. But the desegregation suits, the equalization suits tended to have an equal number of boys and girls, as you might expect, as plaintiffs. The desegregation suits were all filed on behalf of girls. I kept thinking, somebody has noticed this, somebody has written about this, I'm going to find this somewhere. And for years I thought that. I just kept waiting and reading historical journals, but nobody said anything about it. So I kept looking. And then uh, it's hard to find women, they marry and change their names. But I wanted to find out, find Marguerite Carr, who met the principal on the front steps of Elliott Junior High and filed that first lawsuit. I wanted, so I went to the Marriage Bureau in Washington, D.C., found her marriage certificate. She had married. Her new name was Stokes. I called her up. I said, I, I, I see that you filed a, a school desegregation lawsuit in 1947. Would you be willing to talk to me? And she said, well, what took you so long? <laughs> so it was at that moment that I knew that there were 
women, older women who hadn't been talked to by anybody. And that if I didn't do it, as some of these people, who was going to do it? So I knew I knew I, I had to get out there, find these women, um, and, and, and interview them. Uh, and I looked through other archives, archives in New Orleans, archives in Charleston, found more women, um, and, and just called them up. Cold calling people is very difficult to do, as you might imagine. But to answer your second question, how, how did people respond? Uh, at least the desegregation first that I called were happy to talk to me. Uh, most of them had not been interviewed, in fact. And um, I was honored and humbled to hear their stories. Um, it, it was quite an experience. Um, usually I would go out to their house in Baton Rouge or wherever and sit down at the table for two or three hours often. And they would tell me about their family and their friends and what happened in these schools. It was difficult. Uh, it was difficult for them, but almost no one said no. Only, only one person said, I can't talk about that. It was too awful. I can't talk to you. Yeah, so uh, particularly in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, but everywhere, also in Albany, Georgia, which is southwest Georgia, where six girls desegregated the high school in 1964. Um, yeah, they became you know, very, very tight with one another. And um, they would meet after school. They would confide in each other. They did not confide in their parents, which I found surprising at first, but it became clear that if their parents knew the extent of what they were suffering in these schools, that they would take them out. And so those who were seniors and who had volunteered to, to desegregate, they only talked to one another. So they could only get real understanding when they talked to each other. And yes, and they stayed in touch. They're still in touch. Sometimes, you know, they go on vacation together. That's a great question. So segregation existed in every state of the Union, even in states where it was prohibited, even in states where it was illegal. So uh, de facto segregation uh, was everywhere. One of the early lawsuits that was very important that set the groundwork for Topeka was in rural Arkansas and in, Ar sorry, rural Kansas. And in rural Kansas, you were, it was illegal to segregate students. Uh, in Kansas, you could only practice segregation uh, at uh, cities of over 15,000. So a group got together in 1948 and 1949 uh, in uh, South Park, Kansas, which was outside of Kansas City, Kansas, filed a lawsuit, uh, went on strike from the school, uh, set up their own school in a church and in women's homes, filed a lawsuit, and it was a lawsuit that a local lawyer filed. The NAACP came in at the, in at the end and helped, and they won that lawsuit. And it was when they won in rural Kansas that the NAACP said, I think that we can prevail. We should file in Topeka. So Topeka didn't come until after uh, they had already won that case in rural Kansas that most people don't know about. So, but yeah, New Jersey, New York, California, Indiana, East St. Louis, all these places had segregated schools. And in most of these places, girls did try to walk into these schools uh, just kind of acting on their own uh, without consulting the NAAC, without consulting their parents. And in fact, some lawyers in some of these places were really irritated with these students. This is not the legal way to proceed, and they thought it was messy, and they wanted to do things by the book in, in courtrooms, whereas these students, they wanted to simply act now. Right, so um, massive resistance. <laughs> and so southern states began to pass a flurry of laws in state houses, making it illegal to teach in a desegregated school, making it illegal for, um, uh, for black students to apply to white schools, doing anything they could to pass laws that would uh, push against Brown. So what happened is that the NAACP and lawyers in every state had to go and litigate every single school district. And that's why it took 10 years in many places to get these first students in, because they had to relitigate in every neighborhood. And you know, there's a lot of litigation going on now, trying to resegregate students, particularly, for instance, in Alabama, where uh, 
uh, school districts are trying to separate themselves from larger districts so that they can make a smaller all-white district. And the litigation is ongoing there, too. There's litigation in New Jersey uh, to try to desegregate the schools there. What I see when I hear about these desegregation cases now is that they're just part of an endless uh, desegregation litigation movement that has been going on since 1939. If you don't, if you don't have any right now, I, I, I didn't get to read. There were a few people in Albany, Georgia, and I just thought I would read what they had to say. In Albany, Georgia, uh, uh, there was a, an intense, long-fought uh, civil rights movement uh, mostly composed of young people. And Lori Pritchett was the local um, uh, police chief. And his response to these marches and sit-ins uh, was to simply take all of these demonstrators and lock them up in jail. So most of the young women who desegregated in 1964 had been part of the movement um, for all of their young lives. Uh, many of them had been to jail. Beverly Plummer, who desegregated in 1964, had been to jail seven times. And in jail, Camellia Jail, often they would put upwards of 80 uh, girls in the same cell. Uh, no running water, terrible stench. It was, it was these truly horrific experiences. In 1963, when the other schools were desegregating, in Albany, a large group, a heter heterogeneous group of boys and girls showed up in 1963 also to desegregate. Lori Pritchett arrested them all and sent them to jail. The following year, only six people showed up again to try to walk into Albany High, and they were all girls. So I'm just going to read you what Beverly Plummer had to say. She said, um, uh, most high school seniors, and they started with the 12th grade in Albany also, most high school seniors, she says, wanted to graduate from where they were at. They didn't want to come over. Then she says, I just didn't feel like I was giving up something. I just felt like I had been working towards something. When you work towards something for freedom, you have the right to go there, the right to stay. And I wanted to make that adjustment that I had marched for, that I had went to hear Martin Luther King's speech on, uh, on the March on Washington for, because I was in the March on Washington. And this was, what, and this was the next step to integrate. Why stop now? Continue. And then Shirley Lawrence Alexander, who also desegregated Albany High uh, with Beverly Plummer, um, remembered it this way. She said, I anticipated that I would go through a lot. I wasn't going to fool myself about that. But I was ready for even that. I was ready for whatever. Because when you've gone that far, there's no turning back. You can't turn back. You say this is what you believe in, so, you, so are you going to run? I don't think any of us thought about running. We thought about enduring it until the end, no matter what. Sort of the note on which I end the book. So, so yeah, so um, Albany High School quickly became all black. Uh, it only took a few years for that school uh, to tip. And the same thing happened to McDonough 19, where the three first graders desegregated it. It quickly also became all black. And the reasons that, that they were moved to Sims uh, Middle School, elementary and middle school, was because Sims was still all white. So the idea was to, to try to keep, to keep segregating, uh, desegregating. Um, elsewhere, in places like Nashville, uh, in, in some uh, locales in North Carolina, school districts did achieve uh, fully desegregated schools. And, but the high point of school desegregation was 1988. And in 1988, 50% of African Americans were in formerly all-white and predominantly white schools. And they made up anywhere between uh, 15 to 35% of the school body. Um, 
after 1988, you begin to see rapid resegregation, not only the, in the Deep South, but throughout the, throughout the United States. Uh, there was a decision in Milliken v. Bradley in 1974 that made it uh, illegal for schools to look at race and admissions. And then there was another Supreme Court, uh, the Roberts Court, decided in 2007 in, in appearance against the Seattle School Board. He said the only way to stop uh, basing, thing, basing decisions on color is to stop basing decisions on, on color. And what he meant by that was that school boards couldn't try to make their schools racially diverse, uh, that this could not be an overt goal. So... On the le- in the legal sphere, on the on the legal end of things, right, Brown has slowly been chipped away at by the Supreme Court. So, as these decisions began to chip away at Brown, parents became more emboldened and began to remove their white students uh, from desegregated schools. So we're at a moment now where a lot of parents are looking around at highly segregated school systems. Uh, in, in places you wouldn't expect, you know, New York particularly, and people feel a lot of, a lot of despair. Um, but I, I would say that the women that I spoke to um, don't see it that way. They think that Brown was an, a, a, you know, they see Brown uh, as, a, as an important decision that had a lot of other social ramifications. Um, but they think that the, it's the failure to live up to Brown that's the problem. It's not that Brown was not a good decision. Um, so here's what we know. First, there's been a lot of uh, research on whether or not diverse classrooms are beneficial. All of the sociological research shows that students do better in diverse classrooms. The white students do better. The African-American students do better. It actually is beneficial to the to the entire student body on learning outcomes as well as social outcomes. That's why it's so strange that these parents are so desperate to create a kind of monochromatic white school district because all the research shows that it's not good for children. Um, on the college level, uh, student African-American, particularly students who go and who do not have enough of a cohort of other African-American students, tend to not do as well in college. So increasingly there are programs, particularly there's the Posse program, where they put students, uh, students of color, uh, together in a group and, and help to get those, that group of eight or ten students into a college. And that group stays together throughout the four years and meets with an advisor every week. And they have you know, financial aid if they need it. So there are creative programs that are trying to help on that level. Um, but on the high school level, on the grade school level, it's still, it's still an, an unwon battle. And housing is very important because a lot of these lawsuits now are saying, why can't my child go to the school nearest our home, which they live in a racially segregated neighborhood. Uh, so I find that encouraging that, um, that they were working on it in Ohio. They, I, have not lo- I did not look in Ohio. Um, <laughs> um, and where is Shaker Heights in relationship to the it, – it, oh, really? Interesting. And Cleveland, um, yeah, I, so there are so many other places. You know, the Midwest is full of these kinds of stories, and there are so many other women, I'm quite sure, who also desegregated in places like Shaker Heights, um, whenever it was they desegregated. And um, I'm trying to set up a, a, a database and an archive for these stories, because since the book has come out, women have started to write to me and say, I was one of these first scholars that are getting in touch with me saying, I interviewed this other first. And so what I'd like to do is put all those stories together. But Ohio, I'm sure Cleveland must be a fascinating place to look at as well. Yeah. So did the, did the, did the women, did, did the women themselves in the interviews uh, reflect on the fact um, that it was, uh, there were so few boys. Interestingly, um, none of them had really given it much thought. Um, 
in Albany, when there was only six girls, Rubinell Singleton Strobel, who I interviewed in 2010, she said, six girls going over to a school with thousands of white students, you know, and I'm not King Kong, and we couldn't get one boy to go. And she said, you know, isn't that something? And, but she didn't, she was the only person who had anything to say. That was the only, and, and what, and, uh, Elaine Green, who desegregated in Baton Rouge, did say, she's like, well, I, I asked them all, by the way, when I interviewed them, one of the last questions was always, why do you think it's young women who did this work? Um, but because it wasn't discussed at the time, and, and they didn't know what was happening in other cities, they just assumed that, that they were part of a majority where they lived. So no one so had connected the dots. But Elaine Green said something interesting. Elaine Green eventually became a principal of a school in Detroit, uh, and she was there when it became desegregated. She was there as the white student body slowly decreased. And she uh, witnessed what happened when the white school students were no longer in the building and the building fell into disrepair. Um, a very wise person. She also was part of um, the, a kind of black nationalist movement after she desegregated Baton Rouge. She said, look, at this time in 1963, no one was going to put girls forward. There was no way that we were going to have a leadership position in other areas of civil rights. I think some of us might have felt that this was our opportunity to lead because this was not a job that necessarily others wanted to do. So that's her, and I think she's right about that. Desegregating a school, among many other things, right, is one of the worst jobs that you could take on. It was every single day. And all of them said, you know, the violence was awful, but the worst part about it was the ostracism. They all said that to a person, no matter what had happened to them. It was the silence. It was the way the students moved away from us when we sat down. It was the way that the teacher wouldn't call on us in class. I would go all day without talking. I had to take mints with me to, to keep, I, you know, I, it was terrible. Um, and so, and the boys, by the way, who did desegregate with these girls in Charleston, in Baton Rouge, and elsewhere, when the situation got like that, by November, December, many of them left. And they left in part because they could. As young men, they could simply move and get a job somewhere else. But they also left because they thought, what am I, this isn't doing anything. And they felt, um, they felt that it wasn't worth it, is, is what some of the young men said. Um, in what way? No, fathers chose daughters to desegregate. Oh, you mean was it their fathers who, who told their daughters, you, you need to stay in school? Yes, you're correct. So parents in general, but fathers particularly, often if their son said, I don't want to go, or I'm not interested in this, parents were more likely to say, it's your decision. So boys were given more autonomy. So while most girls volunteered to desegregate in the high school level, at the grade school level, when you saw girls desegregating, it was more of a, what we might call a patriarchal relationship between the father and the daughter. And many women who I interviewed who were little when they desegregated said, you know, in those days, when your parents said to do something, you know, you just did it. Just, just but there's so there's also another case. So Spotswood Bowling was the only uh, lead plaint, boy lead plaintiff uh, of uh, of all of the lawsuits, even the Brown lawsuits. And when the press came to talk to him, the press looked for him for two years because he had been listed as the lead plaintiff from 1950 to 1952. When they finally got him, his mother wrestled him down. He she put him in a suit, got him in the living room, and the press comes in and, and he wouldn't talk about school desegregation. He made it clear to them that he'd rather do anything else, anything else, rather than talk about school desegregation. Uh, so, so boys have ways of resisting <laughs> if they didn't, you know, kids in general make themselves clear to their parents, but, but, but boys also did have a way of resisting the job of being a lead plaintiff and having to talk to reporters. So in the 1940s, right after World War II, white municipalities began, suddenly they had money that they could put into their own 
infrastructure. So they began to float bonds to build new schools. And this was happening all over the U.S., 1947, 1948. As these modern, sleek, beautiful structures began to be erected, black parents increasingly looked at these schools and became more and more um, upset and became more uh, active. They became uh, activists on behalf of their children because it it was increasingly so unfair. To give you an example, in Hearn, Texas, where uh, the Jennings twins filed a lawsuit, the school was, the black high school had burned down to the ground. So they put the black high school in a former German prison of war camp. They took the German prisoner of war camp, moved it to the old site of the black high school, and propped it up with old tires. So when we think about what it means to file a lawsuit that could potentially get you killed because in rural Texas, his life and the life of his daughters were at stake, it's important to know what those schools were like. Uh, his daughters had to be sent out of state for three years while the lawsuit was in the courts, uh, and he had to stay up nights with a shotgun because the KKK in the, uh, in the area threatened to kill him. But what was the other choice, to send his daughters to a prisoner of war camp? I, I think it helps to, uh, to know, when you think about how a movement is created, these are the conditions that they were looking at. In Washington, D.C., where Marguerite Carr filed the lawsuit at... Brown Junior High, it was a school built for about 500 students. It had almost 1,000 students in it. The kids had to attend in shifts. You either go the first half of the day or the second half of the day. There were 50 students in a classroom. Classes were being carried on in hallways, in the janitor's closet, in the basement. It was a fire trap. There was nothing. The school, it wasn't, it was, these were places where learning could not go. And so when you think about the risks that parents and daughters took, when you think about what propelled them to go so far uh, as to file a lawsuit and become very unpopular with local whites and to take on that kind of risk, though the, the, the state of emergency in black schools is what drove that. And as much as they wanted desegregated schools, they also just needed functional schools. So a lot of these parents, they had long-term ideas about school desegregation, but they wanted to see how far they could get by filing a desegregation lawsuit. And I will say that in the wake of these lawsuits, suddenly the state started to fix the black schools and to invest in the black schools. And many of the people in the area, once the black schools were renovated, they thought, okay, the lawsuit is over. But often the parents who filed the lawsuit kept going. Yes. Many preferred equalization. They thought desegregation was too radical, it was too dangerous, and it would create too much backlash, which is an ongoing critique of Brown that you still hear. And the other critique of Brown is that people worried that it would take resources away uh, from black institutions, that it would decrease black capital and, and, and take away from what, had, what, what blacks had managed to create. In places like Washington, D.C., there was Dunbar High School. In Wilmington, uh, the, uh, Howard High School, these were great schools. And um, uh, black members of the community really worried about those spaces. Um, the place where you had really, really horrible schools uh, was mostly in rural areas, but also just sort of depended school by school. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.